This is a Tuesdays with Merton bonus episode from the archives of the Thomas Merton Center at Bellarmine University. The following lecture was the ITMS Presidential Address of David Golomboski, delivered for the 17th General Meeting of the International Thomas Merton Society, presented June 26, 2021. His address is titled, Absurdity and Imagination in a Time of Upheaval. I want to reflect a bit on the pandemic experience, which for the last couple of years since we've gathered last has, has been um, obviously a major um, event, a major disruption to our lives. So I want to reflect on what maybe that has revealed about our lives before the pandemic, what it has reflected of our lives during this pandemic experience, and maybe what it requires of us as we move forward. Like many others, um, the COVID-19 pandemic um, emerging brought me back to a classic piece of writing about public health um, or maybe about public illness, and that is Albert Camus' novel, The Plague. This is a book that imagines a mysterious and deadly disease overtaking a city in French Algeria. The city shuts down and the various characters respond to the situation in their distinct ways. The book was published in 1947, um, but it became a surprise bestseller once again in 2020 as we all wrestled with our new contemporary plague. Thomas Merton read the plague and was quite familiar with Camus more generally. Merton challenged and resisted certain elements of Camus' philosophy, but in general held a great deal of admiration for Camus. Among other things, it's Camus who Merton quotes at the beginning of part two of Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, attributing to him this version of a famous aphorism. Quote, an oriental wise man always used to ask the divinity in his prayers to be so kind as to spare him from living in an interesting era. As we are not wise, the divinity has not spared us and we are living in an interesting era. I don't know what it says about our wisdom, but uh, I think we certainly can agree we are living in an interesting era. Camus, of course, is best known as the most famous philosopher of the absurd. And the plague is an examination of the various ways that people respond to that absurdity in their lives. If you're familiar with Camus and his understanding of absurdity, you likely associate it with the myth of Sisyphus the Greek figure tragically sentenced to push a boulder up a mountain only to have it roll back down over and over again unendingly. The plague by Camus offers a slightly more developed, more complex presentation of absurdity. And whereas the myth of Sisyphus can seem to recommend an attitude of resignation, perhaps a rather depressing message, the plague actually affirms and validates certain positive responses to absurdity, especially in interesting times. Merton wrote at length about the plague. A couple essays uh, on the book are published in the volume of the literary essays of Thomas Merton, and I would recommend those to you. I want to reflect on a few of Merton's comments there on Camus in light of Merton's experience of that book, but also our collective experience of the COVID-19 pandemic, because I think Merton's comments both shed light on what we have been through and also offer wisdom for how we might claim some agency in responding to and moving forward in this contemporary time of plague. So first, I invite you to think with me for a moment 
recollect with me for a moment some of the bizarre, surreal, and downright absurd scenes that we've witnessed over the past year. Some of these have been quaint, maybe even amusing. Things like sports teams competing in empty stadiums with the seats occupied by cardboard cutouts. The University of Nebraska football stadium had a cardboard cutout of my mother-in-law holding my kids. Fake crowd noises piped in through the speakers. Or think of congregations of religious worshipers attending their services in their parked cars, pastors broadcasting sermons over short range radio transmitters. Or think of those days last spring when the grocery stores experienced runs on baking supplies, or the stores ran out of inflatable pools and home haircutting devices as people scrambled to fill their time and meet their basic needs without leaving the house. Other scenes from the past year have been just straight up bizarre. For instance, recall the President of the United States suggesting from the White House briefing room with an outrageous degree of recklessness that perhaps COVID patients should be injected with bleach as a form of cleaning. Other memories from the past year are more distinctly tragic. Think of students all the way from kindergarten through college missing out on months or even an entire year of in-person learning, separated from their teachers and their classmates, instead struggling to learn from their dining rooms or their dorm rooms. Think of families visiting their parents, their grandparents through nursing home windows, and in some cases saying goodbye to their loved ones over FaceTime rather than in the room with them. Think of those terrible images we saw last spring of crematories in New York City working 24 seven while refrigerated trucks filled up with body bags after overrunning the city's morgues. These are heartbreaking images that I'm sure many of us in our comfortable, mostly first world settings could not have fathomed prior to March of 2020. Yet by now, each of us in this community of the ITMS, which is a vibrant and wide reaching family of ministers, teachers, intellectuals, workers, artists, and seekers of all kinds, we now each have our own catalog of personal pandemic absurdities. For my part, in February of this year, my grandmother died at 88 years old. For the most part, that was an occasion for gratitude. She was very healthy for almost all of her life. I'm her oldest grandchild and was able to live quite, quite long in her presence and she didn't die of COVID. Nevertheless, because of COVID concerns, only a few family members were able to be present in her final days and then to attend her funeral. Aside from my parents, there's been no more enduring, formative, and caring figure in my life than this grandmother. And if you had told me two years ago that on the day of her funeral, I would be a thousand miles away, going about my business entirely removed from that event, I would have insisted that surely you're describing some alternate, impossible reality, some dismal absurdity. We each have our own version of these stories. The past year and a half, has put each of us in situations that far beyond the inconvenience and the practical disruption of the COVID times have verged on surreality and even absurdity. And yet at an even deeper level, the COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted a fundamental absurdity in the basic reality of human life. This deadly virus has reminded each of us 
or I'll say should have reminded each of us, of the fragility of our existence on this planet. For Camus, the ever-present reality of death was a critical fact. The plague of his novel, just like our current pandemic, presents what the contemporary pop philosopher Alain de Botton calls, quote, concentrations of a universal precondition, dramatic instances of a perpetual rule, that all human beings are vulnerable to being randomly exterminated at any time by a virus, an accident, or the actions of our fellow man, end quote. This utter vulnerability and the knowledge that death may come for us at any moment is the fundamental absurdity of our lives. As Merton put it, the experience of the plague highlights, quote, the radical absurdity of an existence into which evil or irrationality can always break without warning. Of course, we have no shortage of philosophical and religious workarounds to the problem of death. We've constructed countless doctrines, cosmologies, and mythologies to help reconcile ourselves to death and to give some sense of meaning to that inevitability. In the character, or excuse me, in the plague, Camus presents the character of a Jesuit priest who tries to explain the disease as a punishment from God or as a divine call to repentance. But after observing the death of a child, the priest is forced to admit that he simply cannot comprehend the logic of this tragedy. Camus rejects these religious or philosophical workarounds. As, as Merton writes, Camus will not play around with any explanation that evades or minimizes the seemingly utter finality of death. Merton describes the plague in Camus' no novel as having an unveiling effect. Prior to the arrival of the disease, the people of the town rest complacent in a social order which leaves them mostly prosperous, and this is a quote, prosperous, comfortable, secure, confident that there's some rationality to it all. They've sought meaning and consolation in external sources of validation. They've invested their lives in living up to the customs and conventions of their time and place, looking for some source of stability against the absurdity of life. Their lives are driven though, as the anthropologist Ernest Becker would have said, by the denial of death. Even though they don't know what it is, they assume, they insist that there must be some objective meaning to their world. Now paradoxically, Merton notes, social orders of this kind designed to evade death seem also to reflect, quote, an unconscious death wish insofar as they are built on the death of the nonconformist the alien, the oddball, the enemy, the criminal, end quote. Much like those who today insist that the only way to preserve our way of life is to shut out migrants and refugees who are seeking shelter under our roof, or who insist that the only way to keep our communities safe is to lock up in prisons those who we deem undesirable, all of our strenuous efforts to secure ourselves against death counterintuitively turn us into agents of death. The disease, however, reveals the shallowness and the futility of it all. All of these systems, conventions, and buffers against meaninglessness, excuse me, against meaninglessness, are anchored not in solid ground but in sand, in sources of meaning which will themselves be swept away. The insight of Camus' plague, then, and also 
the plague of our time, is that we simply cannot be certain that our lives will bear meaning in externally verifiable ways. Death may come for us at any moment, and all our strivings, ambitions, and achievements may amount to the equivalent of Sisyphus's boulder rolling right back down the mountain. This is the absurdity of human existence. The pandemic experience has disrupted and unsettled us not only because of all the many practical inconveniences, nor simply because of the naked tragedy of millions of deaths worldwide, but also because it has laid bare to all of us in new ways the utter fragility of our lives, as well as the inadequacy of our defenses. So given this, it might seem that the only response is to give up. If life is fleeting and our socially constructed so sources of meaning will also fall away, then what is the point of going on? Where is hope to be found? Camus, however, was not an advocate of surrender. Indeed, the book, titled The Myth of Sisyphus, is a condemnation of suicide. He rejects it as yet another attempt to impose some schema of rationality onto the absurdity of life. In Camus' Nobel Prize acceptance speech, Camus said instead that he wanted in his writing to show readers, quote, how to forge for themselves an art of living in times of catastrophe. Merton writes that the first step in a response to absurdity is Quote, the affirmation that though the reasons which are supposed to justify existence do not in fact justify anything at all, one will go on living anyway. The encounter with the absurd then is not a dead end. It is rather an opening to new things. Merton says the confrontation with the absurd and the ability to be undistractedly, unflinchingly aware of it is not final. It is purely provisional. It is only a beginning. It is a clearing of the ground for something else. So what is this something else? Well, in short, according to Merton and to Camus, it is the possibility of love. Merton points to two important characters in the plague. The first is Dr. Bernard Roux, the book's narrator, and the second is a man named Jean Tarou, a vacationer in the plague-stricken town and the character with whom Camus seems most to have identified himself. Even as people, people succumb left and right to the disease, Dr. Rue continues to treat patients and Taru forms sanitary squads to fight the disease. They both place their lives at risk and Taru in fact becomes the final victim of the disease. Merton wrote that those characters took on work that was quote, just as dogged in many ways, just as absurd as that of Sisyphus. He continues, there are moments when their exhausting and dangerous struggle seems utterly hopeless, but they continue anyway, not in order to prove themselves better than the plague, but simply because they are alive and they want to help others stay alive too, end quote. They gave of themselves in love of others, not because they were dependent on the hope of results, to quote Merton's famous letter to James Forrest, but rather because having confronted the absurdity of their lives, their only hope for making meaning was to choose to affirm the value of life itself, not only in themselves, but in others as well. This is what Camus calls a revolution, a revolt against the absurd. And Merton says that this revolution of love is the only way to create a kind of logic in the face of absurdity. Quote, 
one must make every effort to build a new order of love to supersede the false order, which for all its ideology of humanitarian love or of supernatural grace is in fact a justification for murder and for hate. What this all means is that the disruption wrought in our lives by the COVID-19 pandemic is an opportunity for new things, for building new ways of living and of loving. We've all adapted to new forms of relationship with our families and our closest loved ones. For those people with whom we have not been able to share physical space, we've developed new ways of connecting. For those partners, parents, or children who suddenly last March were always around, we've developed new ways of distancing. We've become experts at Zoom. We have re-engaged our outdoor spaces and you can now find people of all ages exchanging fist bumps in place of handshakes. The International Thomas Merd Society has adapted too, and this present conference is one example, but only one example. Additionally, to name a few other examples, the always active Chicago chapter has hosted an impressive series of speakers via Zoom. The St. Louis chapter, has continued to hold its book discussion series via Zoom. In January, Doug Hurtler, Judith Valenti, Brother Paul Quinnen, Jonathan Montaldo, in conjunction with Mepkin Abbey, organized an online retreat to celebrate Merton's 106th birthday in that month. The Argentina Westlands chapter is planning their second uh, Merton conference for a virtual format this semester. Perhaps most noteworthy, as Mark mentioned uh, at the outset, the Board of Directors last summer initiated the Tuesdays with Merton online lecture series, which has been planned and executed with remarkable success by Teresa Sandock, Alan Culp, and Dan Haran. And I know many of you have taken advantage of those lectures. Now, do any of these initiatives or programs, and there are many more, of course, that I didn't mention, but do any of these amount to Merton's call to build a new order of love? Perhaps not quite, but they are signs of creative imagination, which is essential to making anything new. In the essay that closes Merton's collection titled Contemplation in a World of Action, Merton describes imagination as, quote, a discovering faculty, a faculty for seeing relationships, for seeing meanings that are special and even quite new. The imagination, he writes, is something which enables us to discover unique present meaning in a given moment of our life. By imagining and embracing new ways of being together, <clears throat> we discover new meaning in this given moment. Imagination is a sign of life, of our choosing to keep on living and loving one another and loving the world. I should be clear that I don't mean to neglect or minimize the difficulty of this choice to live and to love in new ways. The tragedy of the COVID pandemic has been immense and the confrontation with absurdity that it invites can be paralyzing. Also, many of us are longing right now, not for anything new, but for the old comforts that we've been deprived of for so long. This is good and this, this is normal. Next week at this time, 
or in just about this time next week. I hope to be sitting at my first Major League Baseball game since 2019, and I am very much looking forward to that old comfort. But however we emerge from this pandemic and settle gradually into whatever our new normal is to be, there will inevitably be awkwardness, discomfort, and conflict along the way. In New Seeds of Contemplation, Merton describes the human community as a, quote, body of broken bones. And he notes that there is a certain pain of reunion involved in resetting our fractured bonds. Perhaps, though, this moment in history offers us a gift, that is, an opportunity to embrace the discomfort of newness, to lean into the uncertainty of transformation. In that essay, In Contemplation in a World of Action, that I quoted a moment ago, Merton writes about the priority of renewal in the contemplative life. Our new life will emerge from authenticity now. This is not merely an empty moment of transition. We are not in an inter interval of dynamic reconstruction in which we are simply going to put back together a static life in which we will rest. Our rest is in the reconstruction itself. Transition is also fullness. To put it another way, as St. Catherine of Siena is often quoted, all the way to heaven is heaven. It is my hope then that if there is good to be found in the suffering and the estrangement that the past year or year and a half has imposed on us, my hope is that it might provoke an occasion for newness, an opportunity to look at our lives and our world afresh. Merton wrote at the end of his essay on the plague that, quote, man's destiny is in his own hands and everything depends on whether he chooses life and creativity or death and destruction. My prayer is that we might revolt against the absurdity of our situation as finite vulnerable creatures by daring to imagine what Marie Dennis in her keynote speech yesterday called a civilization of love. And I pray that we might build toward that new order of love, both in our individual lives and together as this community, the International Thomas Merton Society. Thank you very much.